0: Welcome to the Speaks Exchange Podcast with your host, Donald Taylor. As a renowned learning and development industry expert, as well as chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, Donald sits down with experts from around the globe to talk business communication, learning technology, language, digital transformation, and engaging, upskilling, and reskilling your organization.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Speaks, the first intelligent language learning platform for the digital workplace. Listen in and you might learn a thing or two. Hello, it's Donald Taylor once again with the Speaks Exchange podcast. And in this episode, I'm chatting with Trish Yule. Trish Yule is the founder of Owl's Ledge. That doesn't begin to cover the breadth of her experience, nor indeed the depth of her curiosity about our world of learning and development. Trish, we've known each other for a while. I'm sure many people listening will know you, but can you quickly explain your current role and how long have you been doing it?
0: Yeah, thanks, Don. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So my current role is actually I design learning systems that connect training environments to operational environments. So some may call that learning engineering.
1: Well, it sounds like engineering to me. I'd always be cautious of sticking the word engineering and learning together. My big thing is that learning is something that happens inside people's heads and to engineer it would be difficult. But We're definitely doing some engineering there. And would I be correct in saying data plays a large role in what you're doing with that?
0: It does. And actually, so the organization, the global organization, IEEE, which of course we know from engineering has actually created a consortium and defined the role learning engineer. And learning engineer and the discipline of learning engineering is actually multi-disciplines, multiple disciplines that are integrated together, of which data, analytics, emerging technology, design thinking... Many different disciplines come together into a more integrated
1: kind of view. So for sure. And I remember following, you know, I follow you on Twitter. Uh, by the way, everyone should follow Trish on Twitter and she's Trish Yule. It will be in the show notes along with a lot of other stuff. Following you on Twitter, Trish, and reading about the learning engineering stuff you were talking about in 2019 and the IEEE's role in that. Fascinating stuff. Really, if you follow Trish, you'll be introduced to a whole swathe of interesting stuff that it's worth picking up on. Trish, we're here to talk about... The title for this podcast, as I have it, is AI Chatbots Conversation and convergence. It sounds like a very grand topic. Rather than starting in the abstract realm, could we start with an example, a story that puts it all into context? What do we mean when we talk about conversation, convergence, and chatbots?
0: So I want to I take us back with two stories just very briefly in order to illustrate, because it'll be examples that I think people can identify with regardless of what they do and where they are within their learning journey as a practitioner, as a professional. So back in the 1990s, I actually worked as an IT professional for Xerox. And I was, I had a dual role. We were part of the team where I was straight up IT doing technology implementations for organizations. And then also we were building the distance education practice for the first time. Hmm. And so that was when we first started getting into, you know, online learning. This is back in the day in the 1990s when we had things like NetMeeting, when we had plateau, when we had like the first learning management systems and those first online learning environments. But as an IT person, one, one of the big projects that I worked on was actually on this whole concept of customer loyalty. And in the 1990s was when we actually started with customer loyalty cards and yeah. customer loyalty programs. And what's interesting about back then in the 90s was that these companies that were making these investments in order to be able to capture and store that data were paying a king's ransom to be able to do so and not be able to analyze it in any kind of way. And grocery store were the first ones who actually implemented these types of technologies and these types of data practices. But it wasn't until like the early 2000s that we suddenly had suddenly that we eventually had the analyses and the analytics tools to be able to process that data. So the reason why that's kind of really instrumental now is I feel like in the learning function, we have the same thing, these repositories of data that go way, way back that we just haven't had the tools or the techniques to be able to process and now we've come to a point in our history and in our maturity as a field of practice to be able to do so in a meaningful way in the same way that we're used to organizations processing our customer and consumer patterns based on data they're collecting and loyalty programs
1: trish i'm sure at some point in the future we'll have a conversation about data because i can't imagine anybody in learning and development thinking about data and not thinking about you and not wanting to talk to you about it. And that's the point of these podcasts, to get expertise and share it. And I've got so many questions to ask you about that, in particular about the realm of expertise. Why are we doing this now when marketing was doing this 15 years ago? But let's put that to one side for the moment. But you said you had two stories. What's the second story?
0: So the second story goes into... so, So the first thing is... If we're going to have insights into compelling people to take an action, whether that's behavior change or we're trying to drive user adoption or we're trying to help change people's ways of working, which of course is everything that's happening right now. There's so much focus on what we're doing as learning practitioners in this space. Then how can we draw from, again, other domains in being able to see how they're using, especially conversation or chat data in order to be able to compel action. And the reason why that's important is not only because it's in the title of this particular podcast, (laughs) but because these are now, we now have access to this type of data, conversations, discussion data, And we can process it now at speed and scale by using things like artificial intelligence. And so a a quick story on that. Again, if we go into the domain of marketing, Don, as you said, so one of my clients is Mars, the food manufacturer for food for pets and for people. And Mars actually ran a social media campaign that compelled human behavior, that actually compelled consumer action back in 2007 and I the dates to me are really important because if we in learning have an understanding that there are other models from other domains that we can connect with in order to be able to learn from other disciplines and be able to apply it to our own practice and that there's maturity in these things that'll help us jumpstart and accelerate applying these types of skills and these types of practices in our own in our own wheelhouse so Mars actually drove a campaign in Australia what they did was they they actually processed where conversations were happening around current events, and what they used was social media data. So they used discussions that were happening on YouTube, discussions that were happening on Facebook, and discussions that were happening on Twitter. And they were able to use a number of different tools in order to be able to pull 14,000 data points a day. And what they were doing was they were analyzing the conversations that were happening on these open public networks in order order to be able to kind of figure out what people's moods were based on what was happening. And one of the things that was happening at the time was Game of Thrones. And (laughs) so after an episode of Game of Thrones, they would analyze and see, were people happy on the internet or sad on the internet? They would do a sentiment analysis based on this conversation data. And what they would do then is then push coupons to people that had to do with, hey, it seems that people are sad right now. Go cheer yourself up. Here's a certificate to go to your local 7-Eleven store and be able to buy a Snickers bar, which is made by Mars, for a, a low cost, right? So I'm making it up, let's say 50 cents. And then on days when they found that the basic sentiment analysis came back with these conversations on social media around current events, influenced by current events, when they found that people were more positive, they would do the same action. They would provide people with these certificates that they could use at a local 7-Eleven convenience store in order to buy a Snickers bar, but it would be with a different messaging campaign. It would say something like, hey, life is great, go celebrate, and then here's your certificate to go buy a Snickers bar, and it increased in price. So if on negative sentiment days, It was 50 cents for a Snickers bar, and I'm making those numbers up. But on positive days, it would be like, go get a Snickers bar for $1.50. And they were able to take a look at their influence through these social media channels by processing these conversations, this chat data at speed and scale for over quite a period of time that actually then they were able to track what the downstream results were. Because of course, if they were having the influence and compelling the human behavior that they wanted, then people were actually showing up at these 7-Elevens in Australia and buying Snickers bars at different price points. And they were then able to see kind of like, did people buy more Snickers bars when they were happy or did they buy more Snickers bars when they were sad and they could get into that kind of a level of segmentation. But that's what I mean about processing Mm -hmm. conversational data in a way that can compel human action
1: and listeners there'll be a link to the case study for this in the show notes Mars rather brilliantly called the hunger algorithm they had for this the hunger rhythm clever people in other parts of the world might have known Snickers bars at some point in the past as being a marathon bar That's what it used to be called in the UK and I think their shtick was we're going to price we're going to do variable pricing we'll price our Snickers bars according to how how the internet is feeling. The lowest point I think they reached was uh, 78 cents, which was apparently due to anger towards the US president. So there we go. A brilliant bit of marketing, it connected one thing how people are feeling with a coupon and it earned a lot of both revenue, but also an awful lot of PR around this. How does that tie in? How are they able to get the information? I mean, we know that's, you know, that's what they're doing. They're shifting, mar- they're shifting these chocolate bars, good for them. But how are they able to get the information, Trish? That told them whether people were happy or sad, if they were upbeat or downbeat for whatever reason. It was something to do with conversational analytics, understanding the conversation. Where does that come from? And does it rely purely on social media or is it broader than that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Don. So, sentiment analysis, being able to take a look at qualitative data. So, conversations or chat data would be qualitative data. Mm-hmm. And we can take a look at basically the tone or the mood of a population of human beings based on the conversations that, they're happenin- that are happening amongst people, right? And then yeah. also the words that they're using and the phrases that they're using. So we're looking for language patterns. And you can adjust, and actually it's interesting because in the case study with Mars, they adjusted for Australian sentiment, slang, and sarcasm. So yeah. even though sentiment analysis is something that we can apply to any kind of chat data set where conversations are happening in any kind of a population, we need to tweak the analyses or the algorithm, if you will, in order to be able to optimize for those variables, right? So, who And people... we'll
1: come back to that later on, Trish, yeah. won't we? The, the crucial yeah. nature of culture. Not all words mean the same to everybody. And particularly in, a, in Australia where people can be quite laconic and, and have a dry sense of humor, they may use words in a very different way to how they might be used in, in the U.S., for example. Trish, you are talking there about this being qualitative data as opposed to quantitative data. So words and slightly fuzzy as opposed to hard numbers. Up till now, yes, up till now, I think it's fair to say we haven't had really the processing power to deal with making sense of large amounts of conversation. Have? But that's changed. It's, it's changed quite
0: significantly. And of course, the data sources have changed. And we'll, we'll talk about one new newish data source in a, in a moment and how it's being used in L&D, but before we get there, it's, it's not only that we now have access to the data, and the data is in a written form, right? So if we yeah. think about social media, it's text. If we think about what's happening in discussion groups, it's text. If we think about the way that we're having a conversation back and forth on Slack or an email, like we have all these different digital formats that are capturing essentially transcripts of written words. And so how do we analyze that for sentiment and again, for language patterns and do other types of data mining Text data mining techniques apply to them, and you're right. We we now have more tools to be able to do it at a lower cost, and at speed, and at scale. The other thing about the Mars example, before we transition into how does this specifically apply into L and D, is we're also talking about two environments. So they went from the cyber environment, social media, and actually compelled action in the physical world. And I, I really want people to connect with that for a moment because we in learning have the same. Ability to do that. So, when I talk about engineering learning systems that connect training environments to operational environments, that's what I mean is that we can actually connect these different environments. And one of the ways that we're doing that now is through the use of chatbots.
1: You left that hanging in the air there, the final paragraph of a chapter in a, in a thriller through the use of chatbots. There's more behind that, Trish. How are we using chatbots? And I believe also when we're talking about chatbots, we're not having conversations necessarily with other people, are we? We may be having it with algorithms. We may even be reflecting with ourselves. So talk talk us through how we're collecting that qualitative data, the words we share in a chatbot and what we can do. with
0: it. Yeah. It's, so there's a number of ways that we can do it. And chatbots in learning, come in many different flavors, and all of them have a commonality where they're generating chat as a potential data set, right? So the conversations that people are having with chatbots are, to your point, Don, usually one-on-one, right? It's Mm -hmm. a human interacting with the chatbot, but there's a transcript that's being generated as those conversations with the chatbot unfold. And so in the work that I'm currently doing with one of my partners, Emma Weber, out of Sydney, Australia, is actually on using a chatbot in a very specific way within the context of a learning system. So Emma is very, known all our around the world and is known for a proprietary methodology that she created called turning learning into action. So how do we help go from instruction into application and implementation? And, and this, is so,
1: this is something which a lot of people have, have sort of ignored for, a, for for too long. The idea of training transfer. And She's quite deliberately calls it training transfer. You train people, but well, how do you know it actually gets transferred to action happening in the workplace? And for too long, that's been a thing. People have been happy to push to one side, but it's kind of important. And she spent eighteen years, if I remember my facts about Emma correctly, working with people to make stuff stick in the workplace. Fair enough.
0: Fair enough. And and I think that if we go back to the original research, just to reference it here with Mary Broad, that what she and her colleagues uncovered was that there are like 271 different ways in order to optimize the learning transfer process. And so Emma has created in her system for turning learning into action, which variables or factors she has found in her 18 years in just focusing on this space, what are the variables that make that happen? And one of the key variables that Emma has found in her work has been this idea of reflection. How do we leverage and give people the opportunity to reflect on what it is that they've just learned and how it is that they intend to apply it back on the job? And it's exactly that kind of reflective conversation that people are used to have been having not used to they still have conversations with humans emma has an entire team of humans around the world that actually are turning learning into action specialists who coach people through this particular process but what they've now done They've created a chatbot that can facilitate many of these same conversations and follow the TLA process as well. So when I got involved with Emma about a year ago, well, now coming up on 18 months and got involved with this chatbot, which is called Coach M, we wanted to take a look at so much more that we could do with the data that's flowing through these conversations. So in addition to the impact and the experience that the chatbot is providing to people to help them turn they're learning into action mm-hmm. how might we do analyses of that chat data on the back end to be able to get some insights into helping to drive results compel human behavior and actually make improvements upstream to things like the instruction or training that they came from before they actually entered into the coaching process
1: okay there's a whole lot of stuff there and mm-hmm. i'm familiar with the story of many of the Uh, people listening might not be. And of course, we'll have links in the show notes to Emma, to Coach em and also, of course, to Mary Broad. I believe Broad and Newstrom, I think they did the work back in the late 90s and then the early 2000s replicated it. And there's some very, very useful stuff there about training transfer. That's a book that's well worth buying and reading. Trish, I think I'm correct in saying that we started off talking about how we can use the word compel. We might use the word persuade, induce, or otherwise influence. prompt people to influence people to behave in a different way. And we could do that by having some conversational analysis. We understand what people are saying, and then we we take action as a result of it. That spins well, off a whole bunch of questions. But the, the key question, the, the key thing I want to say is, there's a fantastic methodology here for getting people to reflect on something. Initially, the benefit of doing it with the machine is just that it's more scalable, perhaps but in addition you said that we have this then the ability to collect data in the background and what I'd like to do is just have a look at well if we aren't coaching people perhaps with a uh, just a machine perhaps it's a chatbot and a human being together what can we do with that data that we collect You you mentioned how we can improve process and and other things but can we drill down on that a bit more
0: yeah and I, I just want to just one point there. key point there is that we we only take action when we're intrinsically motivated external motivators aren't what drive us as humans we we might have an input from the outside external to us, but it's this internal state and this opportunity of being able to reflect. So as an example, if I have a conversation with you, or if I read something, or if I go see a movie, or I watch a documentary, or whatever it is that I consume as an external source, until I take that information in and actually compare it upon reflection, yeah, with yeah. my mental models, my emotional state, what's happening inside in that intrinsic value, that's what actually prompts people to take action. And that's the key. That's the that's the really big key. And so what's happening with the data with Coach M is it's not only helping us connect from the training environment to the operational environment, because essentially what happens is the chatbot actually coaches people on their action plans right. for about eight to ten weeks after they've completed a training event. And they've gone back to their jobs, right? So they're actually back in their work environment, And they're interacting with the chatbot over this cohort period, over this multi-week period, again, usually eight to 10 weeks. And so now what it's allowing us to do in that flow of data that's being created through these conversations is it's allowing us to connect to three different environments. Number one, the instruction environment, the training environment, instruction, into implementation and people taking action. And then the middle environment is actually the integration piece. So we now, through the conversation, data, the chat data that people are having with the chatbot, get insights into people's internal state of minds. And how are they making, you know, how is intrinsic motivation being prompted? How are people deciding to take action? What is their mood, their emotional Mm -hmm. state? What are their barriers, their internal barriers to success that we might get some insights to by connecting instruction to integration to implementation? And that's what the chatbot allows us to do.
1: And when you say integration, we're talking about the internal processes of learning take place inside somebody's head uh, well inside somebody's body which can be a whole variety of things emotional and so on and of course the forming and reforming of memory and the hooking on to previous experience understanding and emotions that enable things to last metacognition
0: thinking about the way that we're thinking and why we're it's all the neuroscience right Mm -hmm. so we can look at any of the neuroscience practitioners out there and see the research on the importance of
1: reflection and integration Mm -hmm. So we have people doing this, and by asking them questions, which are open questions, they reflect, we can collect data about how they're feeling about it, how they're working and so on, and that enables us both to tweak the mechanism and the process for them learning in this current phase, but also presumably to look at what's worked and what hasn't worked, and then improve both instruction and questioning for future cohorts, is that fair enough?
0: Yeah, and it also becomes a leading indicator and not just lagging indicators. So, you know, a leading indicator allows us to make amends so that we get the results that we want. Lagging indicators rather often get us the results that we have to live with. And so how do we use data, right, from a formative perspective, not just summative? I mean, summative is important, but we don't want to just have, we don't want to get to the end of the 10 weeks and find out that the cohort was in jeopardy and and that most of the people didn't actually take action on their action plans and change their way of working back on the job, we want to be able to do that formative assessment up front and we can use these different types of analyses against the chat data. And there are other data that's created by the chatbot too that we can leverage, but we can actually see quite a lot in the actual conversation.
1: I've done a lot of work looking at chatbots for coaching over the past, getting on for two years now, and it's something I first saw a couple of years ago. I am convinced that this year, 2020, is going to see an explosion in the use of these technologies. Of course, it What I'd like to talk about is some of the ramifications of that. It's very easy to do a bad chatbot. Let's not worry about that for the moment. Let's assume we've got a half-decent chatbot. We still have issues around data, don't we? So can we just talk for a minute about what's good about data, what's difficult about data, and what are the unexpected bonuses that we might have by collecting and aggregating data? So straight up, privacy. That's got to be an issue. Hey, I'm chatting with this tool. I imagine it's like, confessional i'm sharing everything but in fact it's going to this huge database and it's being picked over by data scientists that would freak out a lot of people so how do what can you do about that
0: yeah these are these are great questions and so the first if i may is to kind of divide What's happening on the front end of the chatbot that is driving the user experience, right? So when people are interacting with the chat bot, what's happening there? And then into the second part, which is the back end of the chatbot, where do those data go? How is it being harvested? How is it being protected? How is it being anonymized? How is how is access to it being handled? How are we yeah. making sure that there's compliance? legal liability and ethical practice on what's happening with data on the back end. So briefly, on the front end, the reason why this is beginning to explode, and I I know you know this, Don, but many on the podcast perhaps don't, and that is because we're getting more sophisticated in being able to deliver better conversational experiences. And a lot of that has to do with the improvements in artificial intelligence and specifically around NLP, which is Natural Language Processing. So when a human speaks with a chatbot, regardless of what the method is, so it could be typing and texting to the chatbot, or it could be actual a verbal conversation with the chatbot, does the chatbot, and I'm going to use air quotes here, understand the intention, right, what the human has said, and then does the chatbot respond appropriately? And that all goes into experience design. Because if people don't have a good experience, if the chatbot doesn't respond in a way that meets the human's expectation, then they're not going to use the chatbot. It's going to wind up being yet another technology that people decide to ignore.
1: You have one go at making it work properly. People get dissatisfied. They're not coming back.
0: And they're exactly. And then we find that it gets tweaked over time too, because again, if we scale this to different audiences different business units, different geographic locations, put it in different languages, like Coach M now is in multiple languages. How do you then have the nuance in those conversational experiences in order to be able to continue to engage the human being over time? Mm. And so that, that is not, you know, it's not just one and done from a product development standpoint. There's ongoing maintenance there. Data on the back end, some of the challenges there and some of the opportunities there are things like like protecting the data, following national initiatives, following compliance, regulatory, legal liability, as an example. So if we're amassing all this data on the back end, for some countries and work councils and populations, their data has to go to a server that is physically located in their resident country. Yeah. So, it can, you know, it's not as simple, to your point, we can create a cheap chatbot, we can go out, I mean, Microsoft has some great tools with the bot framework, but you can put yourself and your organization and your people at great risk rather quickly by not understanding the data that you're collecting, even if you never do any kind of analysis with it. where it's stored, how it's captured, who it references. That's all a big deal. Who has access to it, how it's anonymized, all of those types of things. The last piece on that is we often in L&D, because this is kind of new for us in being able to come to terms with dealing with all of these different data sources that we now have access to, is that we haven't really had conversation about the appropriate disposal of data, right? So this whole idea of, well, we'll just capture all this data and we'll squirrel it away like we did back in the 1990s, that game is over. Because you now have legal liability in addition to cost, right? So even though the cost of storing data is dropping and continues to drop significantly, but you still—it's still it's still labor intensive to keep that data, maintain that data, and then also from the disposal standpoint. So as an example, if somebody who is a resident in the European Union under GDPR came and said, hey... I want to know all the information that you have about me, ABC organization. This chatbot data would be part of that. It would have to be part of that data set mm-hmm. that is then produced for that individual. And if that individual came back and said I want you to delete all of it, you would need to have the mechanism by which on the back end to separate that individual's data from the collective data set that you have stored from the data that you've collected on the chatbot, and that's not for the faint hearted. So it really to work with partners, I think, in this particular space, especially the first few go rounds that can help guide this particular particular process because legal liability and risk of being in violation of regulatory compliance can come at a, might be a cheap chatbot, could be really (laughs) significant (laughs) fines and some bad reputation.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the monetary side is one thing, the reputational side is another. And of course, there's also the question of your the value of your data itself. Whether you're subject to GDPR or not, if an employee leaves your company, mm-hmm. and they say, I want you to erase all the data you've got about me, you have to consider whether you're going to do that or not. Maybe you don't have any legal obligation to do so. But... If you say, we're going to keep the data, we have no legal obligation to do anything else, you want to consider whether that will have an effect on all the other people working in the company and how open they are with the chatbot in their conversations with it. So you may develop a reputation that actually that thing that looks good on the front end is harvesting data and could come back and bite you, don't trust it. And then the whole mechanism of data collection collapses because people don't trust it. And I think the reputational side is one thing, the legal and regulatory side another, but ultimately comes down to the relationship of trust or otherwise between employers and employees. So lots to think about there, Trish. Look, we've um, we've been talking for quite a while. I think for everybody's sake, we need to stop soon. We're going to have to have another conversation about data in the future because... Well, look, guys, whenever I sit down and have a conversation with Trish, I'm lucky enough to once or twice a year and have a cup of coffee, I I, I always end up not saying very much, listening an awful lot very intently and then writing, scribbling down notes and trying to catch up with everything that Trish has discovered since the last time we spoke. So, well, Trish, we'll have you back and have another conversation. But we always end the podcast with a couple of questions for our interviewees. Firstly, what do you wish you'd known when you started in this marvellous field of learning and development? And secondly, what are you curious about right now? So, what do you wish you'd known when you started I, I can't believe it's the 1990s, but apparently you're telling me it is.
0: Well, uh, what I would have made sure that I knew back then and really reinforced is it's people. It's always been about people. It will always be about people. And how do we, how do, we do more of that? The tools are going to come and go. But how do we make sure that we're really attentive to the people and follow what go into what behaviors they're already exhibiting? How do we join them in what they're doing rather than trying to force them over to the things that we want them to
1: do? Uh, Exactly. Go where the people are and work with what they're doing already rather than trying to get them somewhere else and do something new. I I love that it's about the people all right and what are you curious about right now Trish in this marvelous field of workplace learning uh
0: the big thing for me has actually nothing to do with workplace learning not specifically um and and that's something that I would also suggest is that expand your horizons look outside of you know what's happening in marketing and consumer markets and what are people doing in general um one of the things that
1: actually has me fascinated right now is TikTok okay so you're gonna have to explain TikTok I've got two kids so they can tell it to me but Not everybody out there's got the benefit of somebody to explain TikTok to them. What is it?
0: So TikTok is actually kind of similar to Twitter in a way, but from a video standpoint. So it's micro video. And the whole big thing about TikTok is it's actually very much based on sound and audio. The thing that fascinates me about TikTok is not only the crazy adoption rate that's happening on TikTok right now. This is actually the first technology, social media technology out of China, out of somewhere else that has come into the United States. So we're used to being the ones that create the technology Mm. that then goes out to the rest of the world. This is the first time that we've got high adoption of a social media platform that's coming in from outside of the US. And the way that people are using it has a lot to do with what it is that we hear and how it is that we learn through modeling each other and mimicry and being able to have like jam sessions and riffing off of each other. And I really am convinced it's going to change the way that we provide learning solutions, especially for this cohort that's consuming TikTok now, over the next three to five years.
1: So, if you weren't already thinking you've got a lot of work to do catching up, there's something else for your homework. Go off and find out everything you can about TikTok because you heard it here first, folks, it's going to revolutionize everything, especially if you've got a generation of people who are expecting that approach. Wow. Chris, it's been great having you here. Looking forward to seeing you when we next meet. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much.
0: John, thanks so much.